0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 6th of December. I'm Sabra Lang coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. Patients are waiting longer than ever for elective surgery as public hospitals work to clear the backlog from the disruption caused by COVID. Nearly one in ten patients is waiting more than a year to be admitted, as Nick Grimm reports.
1: When his knees and hips started to go, former Telstra technician Leon Youngblood knew he had to do something if he was to keep on enjoying his retirement. Well, the first thing is, I couldn't go fishing. (laughs) So then I, I, I had to decide, can I really go fishing anymore in the ocean? No, because... You need good legs to stand up, Alice. But told he needed knee and hip replacements, the 70-year-old was also delivered the other bad news. He'd have to wait up to 18 months for the necessary surgery. Yes, definitely, at least 12 months. That's what everybody told me, the hospital, the surgeons, etc. cetera. He wasn't facing the wait alone, though. New data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare showing elective surgery waiting times are at their highest in two decades with public hospitals still battling to overcome the backlog in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Professor Steve Robson is the federal president of the Australian Medical Association.
2: We have the extraordinary news that 12,000 Australians have died while waiting for planned surgery over the last year, and that's a shocking figure for a country like Australia.
0: Before COVID, we'd see one in 50 people waiting more than a year to be admitted for their surgery. Now it's one in 10. That's a big difference and in a country like Australia, that really isn't good enough.
1: And that's Dr Elizabeth Devaney, the Chief Executive of the Consumers Health Forum of Australia.
0: So really someone who is in very severe pain and who's unable to do a lot of things they like to do, you know, go to the park with their grandchildren or engage in activity like exercise, even stand up in the kitchen while they're peeling the potatoes, every day this can have a significant impact on somebody's life.
1: Health groups want urgent action to address the delays, with National Cabinet expected to today discuss the mid-term review of the public hospital funding agreement between the federal government and the states and territories. For Leon Youngblood, though, his long wait was shortened when he moved to the New South Wales mid-north coast. OK, the right hip is excellent and the pain I had in because I had a knee and a hip on one side, that pain is excellent now, it's subsided, that's fixed. And are you fishing again, though? Definitely. I've, I've managed to get the trophy fished. And thankfully, I have a 70-centimetre Barramundi photo on my back porch. A happy ending then. It was, mate. It's great. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Elective surgery patient Leon Youngblood, Nick Grimm, the reporter there. The five-day-a-week letter deliveries from your postie will end soon as Australia Post tries to slash costs and recover from big financial losses. Instead, there'll be letter deliveries every second day, although parcels can still be dropped off daily, with the federal government giving the green light to the changes. Here's political reporter Noor Hadar.
3: Last year, we delivered more than 500 million parcels. Yep, you really love parcels.
4: Australia Post's origins go back almost 215 years. But while the number of parcel deliveries has boomed over the past decade, Australians are only getting two letters a week, down from an average of nine. So the federal government's overhauling Australia Post's obligations, removing a requirement to deliver letters five days a week. The communications minister is Michelle Rowland. These are important changes that are being
5: designed in conjunction with the workforce and Australia Post to ensure that Australia Post remains viable and continues to service the needs, especially of rural and regional Australians.
4: Letter deliveries will come every second day for 98% of the country, while parcels, express, and priority mail can still come daily.
5: Currently, a postie will go
4: past just
5: about every house uh, every day but Australians are only receiving on average about two letters a week. So this means that we have had an inefficient use and really an underutilisation of those posties where we know there's been a huge increase in parcels along with the rise of e-commerce more generally.
4: Australia Post recorded a $200 million loss last financial year and with more losses forecast, the minister says the changes are needed to secure its financial viability. Doing nothing is not an option if we want to
5: continue to service the diverse needs of all Australians who rely on Australia Post, especially in areas where the postal outlet serves not only the postal services, but also often the general store, as well as sometimes the only bank in
4: town. The plan has also been welcomed by the Communication Workers Union, with the national president Shane Murphy saying a six-month trial showed it could improve productivity.
2: This really is a model about What comes in the facility today is delivered to the community by our posties on the day. Significant improvement, significant reform. It's about the sustainability of our jobs and the long-term sustainability for Australia Post and the community.
4: The union helped craft the new delivery model and he says there'll be no job losses.
2: We want to see the company sustainable, we want to see it, see it survive. It provides a very important community service. I mean, not too long ago, we were in COVID and our posties and Australia Post workers were turning up every day to keep the community connected.
4: The changes will be rolled out next year.
0: Noor Haydar reporting. And to tell us more about the changes, the Chief Executive of Australia Post, Paul Graham, is speaking here with our Senior Business Correspondent, Peter Ryan.
6: Well, Paul Graham, if you didn't get approval for this major overhaul, would Australia Post have survived?
2: Well, we'd survive, obviously, because we are government-owned, but survival in the sense of making sure that we're still out there delivering, but financially, that would have placed a burden on the government, and obviously that's not something that anybody wants, and the thing that we've been saying from the beginning, with logical reform, we won't need to be a burden on the government. Uh, we will be self-sustaining and this reform is an excellent first step
6: uh, on that path to financial sustainability. So, given those concerns that you might or could have run out of cash at some point, have you considered getting out of the letters delivery business altogether?
2: No, we haven't. Look, we have a universal obligation uh, to deliver mail. It is still a very important product uh, for the community, uh, for business and also for uh, consumers. Uh, We will send the last letter uh, that ever gets sent in this country. Uh, But we believe that the sensible reform that's been announced today, allowing our posties to uh, split their rounds between mail delivery and delivering more parcels, which we continue to see growth in, uh, allows us to ensure that we can keep those well-paying jobs and also create that balance between delivering mail, uh, but also increasingly focus on delivering a more efficient parcel
6: business. A key change here has been the overhaul of the community service obligation or the universal service obligation delivering to rural and regional areas. Does that still exist?
2: Yes, it does. Uh, you know we play a very special role in the in the the business and the connection of Australia, uh, particularly in regional and rural areas, and we're incredibly committed to ensuring that those services are maintained.
6: Under these changes, consumers will get a diluted letters service, but will they end up paying more for stamps, for example?
2: Well, one of the uh, options we have, uh, and we're working with the government as part of the reform package, is to get what we call a price path for stamps. The current ACCC process is an annual process and a very uh, long uh, process uh, to to get that approval. Uh, We're hearing from our customers that they want some predictability in the pricing path so they can budget for it.
6: So it's up to the ACCC to make the decision. But just to be clear, have you proposed an increase in the postage stamp price?
2: We have. We've put an application forward uh, for a stamp increase. Uh, It is at 30 cents, which is what uh, we have uh, put uh, in in the public domain. Uh, And that still means that the price of a stamp, even after the approval, would be one of the lowest in the OECD.
6: You've got the support of the main postal workers union, but you do have an older traditional workforce, including posties on bikes. Will there be job cuts? No, there won't be job cuts One of the
2: good things about this logical reform is that uh, by creating that uh, greater efficiency and flexibility uh, in our mail and parcels network, it will allow us to sustain uh, good, well-paying jobs for our frontline uh, team members. And they will still be visible in the community five days a week.
0: That's Paul Graham, the Chief Executive of Australia Post, speaking there with Peter Ryan. The United Nations annual climate summit's underway in Dubai as representatives from 200 countries try to agree on plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions and rising global temperatures. A draft of the final agreement shows negotiators are considering calling for an orderly and just phase-out of fossil fuels, although we won't find out what's been agreed to until next week. The climate change and energy minister, Chris Bowen, heads to Dubai later today and he joined me a short time ago. Chris Bowen, does Australia back this draft text pushing for a formal phase out of fossil fuels?
7: We certainly back a strengthening of language and efforts around the mitigation of climate change, and that's the negotiations I'm going into this evening. In my experience, several of those words change around a lot during the negotiations and Some other countries have already indicated that they're not comfortable with that sort of language, but we'll certainly be backing a strong improvement to language on mitigation, uh, as well as representing Australia. I also chair the umbrella group of negotiators, which is Australia, US, UK, New Zealand, Canada, and a number of other countries. Uh, And obviously I'll be consulting with them and putting our position, uh, Australia's position, uh, alongside the position of like-minded, that we need to see a step up in global action uh, on mitigating uh, emissions.
0: Is Australia comfortable with those words phase out?
7: Well, uh, obviously, as I said, uh, Sabra, in my experience, those words change a lot uh, from draft to even the uh, first negotiation session through the night. I would certainly- But it's, it's a be,
0: simple yes or sub- sorry, it's a simple yes and, or no.
7: Sabra, yes. if I could just finish my point. And certainly we are we are supporting Uh, stronger language on on that sort of thing. But in my experience, as I said, some countries like China and the African Union have already said they are not comfortable with that sort of language. So that makes the negotiations difficult. Um, So in my experience, you go into these negotiations with a degree of flexibility, but you also go in pushing for stronger and more action. That's what I'll be doing on Australia's behalf, and that's what I'll be doing as chair of the umbrella group of negotiators. So the COP works uh, in, in these instances through groups. The African Union has already indicated they're not comfortable with that on behalf of the umbrella group I'll be uh, pushing uh, for stronger action.
0: So phase out or phase down what is Australia comfortable
7: with? uh, Look certainly a properly properly phrased uh, move towards phase out I would be comfortable with but as as I said in my experience uh, these words change around a lot.
0: Australia has signed this so-called Glasgow Statement, meaning that we've agreed to stop financing international climate polluting projects. Does that begin immediately?
7: Uh, Yes, we have signed that last night. And this reflects um, the position the government has taken since our election, but it formalises it, the Clean Energy Transformation Partnership, formalises that undertaking, of what our government has been putting in place since the election. It's really aligning our international financing efforts, uh, whether it be aid or... Uh, loans or other things uh, on the global decarbonisation effort. And yes, that takes effect immediately.
0: It's being reported that Australia will not agree to contribute to the summit's Global Loss and Damage Fund. Is that right?
7: Oh, so I see those reports. I'll be—we've uh, we, made very clear. Firstly, on loss and damage, we've been very active in the conversation. We've had a representative on the transition group towards loss and damage. Our key uh, point has been that it must support the Pacific, and we have been arguing for clear and defined support for the Pacific. Uh, We'll be saying more about our approach to global finance, including the Pacific Resilience Fund and other funds over the next few days.
0: But it sounds like you won't agree to that Global Loss and Damage Fund, but you'll agree to funds for the Pacific?
7: Well, the Pacific Resilience Fund is in effect a loss and damage fund for the Pacific, specifically focused on the Pacific, uh, and it's come from the Pacific. And certainly we are very strongly engaged uh, with the Pacific on the development of that Pacific Resilience Fund. As I think our listeners would understand, Australia wants to see uh, the Pacific's issues elevated and the Pacific, you know, in my experience, I talk a lot to my Pacific climate counterparts. There are a number of global funds which they say have not worked for them and we want them working for them. And that's the bottom line that I'll be bringing to all these conversations.
0: Australia is hoping to host the 2026 UN Climate Summit known as COP31. Will you find out in Dubai?
7: Uh, well at the moment, at the moment all our conversations are on who's going to host next year Sabra uh, it's a difficult situation uh, I think it's uh, you know difficult to be uh, saying we want to know who's hosting in 2026 when it hasn't been decided who's hosting in 2024 but we will be involved in that conversation across the board and these things you know uh, are focused on the most immediate Uh Nobody has determined who's hosting next year. Formerly 2025 hasn't been determined, although uh, we can work solidly on the basis that Brazil will be hosting, Um, but we'll be involved in those conversations again.
0: There's been some criticism about Dubai's hosting of this meeting. Well-known climate campaigner, the former US Vice President Al Gore, says that Dubai has abused the public's trust by naming the chief executive of one of the largest and least responsible oil companies in the world to head the event. Does he have a point?
7: Look, I can only speak from my experience and my experience with the COP president, uh, Dr Al-Jabba, has been very positive, very strong. He's been very active. I, I get you know WhatsApp messages from him all the time asking about Australia's views on various things. He wants a good outcome. Uh, he's also the chief executive of one of the world's largest renewable energy companies. So, uh, look, I think the point about this, Sabra, is if we only talk to people we agree with all the time and then talk to countries like us, then we are not going to... Uh, make progress on climate change. We have to really work hard to bring the world together. That means means working with countries um, that are at different stages in the journey. Uh, Every country in the world is either a fossil fuel exporter or a fossil fuel importer. Um, Just sort of singling out certain countries I don't think is a particularly strong way to get a strong outcome. What we need to do is work across the board. That's certainly the cooperative approach I bring to the negotiating table.
0: Chris Bowen, thanks for talking to AM.
7: Good on you, Sabra.
0: Chris Bowen is the Climate Change and Energy Minister. And coming up after 7.30, Hamish MacDonald interviews the Environment Minister, Tanya Plebysik. Overpriced therapies, fraudulent providers and frustrating bureaucracy. We've heard a lot about the problems plaguing the National Disability Insurance Scheme during the 10 years since it was set up. Facing massive cost blowouts, federal, state and territory leaders will discuss possible changes to the scheme at National Cabinet today before an independent review is publicly released tomorrow. In the meantime, participants and their families want to stress that while the scheme isn't perfect, it's critical for hundreds of thousands of people. Here's National Disability Affairs reporter, Naz Campanella.
3: Claire Bartholi lives an independent life – the university graduate is a community volunteer, a paid advocate and has a thriving social circle. It's all thanks to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Without the NDIS, I would totally not be able to leave my house, and not be able to get out of bed. The 27-year-old lives with cerebral palsy and receives funding for assistance, including a powered wheelchair and physiotherapy. She has support workers who helped her attend job interviews and networking events which helped her find employment. I think without the NDIS, I wouldn't have been able to complete this because I've completed it or reached the stage in my life and feel confident. It's a similar story for the Hill family in Victoria. 13-year-old twins Sammy and Ali are both autistic, non-verbal and have brain tumours. They receive funding for occupational therapy and psychology services. But their father Mason Hill says the biggest help has been the support workers who assist his daughters when they go out into the community and also provide some care at home.
1: That's our lifeline. It's changed our lives. The the consistent and super high quality um, support work that we've got, the girls can go off and we're just super comfortable. And it's their job is to look after them and help you know try new things and um, trying to integrate them into society a bit more.
3: The NDIS was established 10 years ago for people with permanent and profound disabilities. It now supports more than 630,000 participants and has grown to cost $35.5 billion. A review into the operation and sustainability of the scheme received almost 4,000 submissions. The findings of that review are due to be handed to National Cabinet today before being made public. The community is hoping for recommendations that make the scheme more transparent easier to navigate and more sustainable. There's also a consensus that after a decade, change is needed. Mason Hill hopes that doesn't come at the expense of people like his
1: daughters. It's just all those little things can make a huge difference for families like us. And if that is, is taken away, then we have to make you know, hard decisions and the end result is the girls will, will suffer.
3: Claire Betholi wants the community to be consulted every step of the way hoping that
0: the NDIS will continue to work with people with disabilities in implementing these changes and working to make sure that they're a part of the scheme that they created and want to be a part of for many years to come. NDIS participant Claire Batholi ending that report from Naz Campanella and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
3: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. It's part of the biggest road project ever built in Australia. When the complex maze of tunnels and roads opened in Sydney last month, it became apparent there was a major design flaw causing traffic chaos. Today, transport planner from the University of Technology, Sydney, Michelle Zybots, on the political decisions keeping us off public transport and in traffic jams. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.